such a time in worship. I just want to go back into it. And I don't even feel the need to teach. But uh, I know God has something to say this morning. He always has something. Uh, he always has a lot of things if we would just listen, I think. And uh, this morning, we're going to be reading two chapters again. We made it last week, and I think we can do it again here. Um, and the title of this morning's message for Genesis chapter 46 and 47 is The Way to Goshen. The Way to Goshen. Previously, we've seen Joseph was second only to Pharaoh, that his brothers went once again to him to get grain. They kept Simeon behind, and they were told to bring Benjamin. We saw that their money was returned, and their hearts failed them. That, like a lot of us, they returned uh, possibly at the last moment. You kind of wait till the last minute. Oh, it's not quite on E yet. I'll fill it up. Well, that's not really good for your fuel pump if you run it dry. So <laughs> I fill it up. I always like to fill up probably around a quarter of a tank just to make sure. But they feasted with Joseph, and they made merry. They didn't yet know that he was Joseph yet. They, uh, again, he filled their sacks. Their money was returned again, except this time he put his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, and Joseph had his servant pursue them. Uh, they pledged death of the person who took it in slavery, their own slavery, because they didn't believe they had it. Uh, and it, we see that Judah ended up stepping up and laying his life down for Benjamin to take Benjamin's place. Uh, we saw Joseph breaking down, kicking all the Egyptians out and weeping and telling his brothers who he was and they were shocked. We saw how he forgave them. Then we see Pharaoh's invite to Goshen that Joseph's family can come and stay with them and live in the land. And we see that he sent back uh, some riches of Egypt and some uh, carts for them to bring all their stuff. So he basically paid for them to relocate which is uh, always nice if you have a job that does that, uh, that pays for you to relocate. This morning, as we get into the message, uh, a few questions, which kind of came up through it, but and some, uh, as I was considering and uh, just reminded of a verse last night that we'll see today, but are you alone? Or do you maybe just feel that way? I think Joseph probably felt that way a lot in life. Uh, I'm sure his brothers might have even felt that in Egypt. They have each other, but what good is that when they're in the middle of this land where they have no power? Do you not know why something is happening? I think a lot of us don't know why anything is happening. You know, even all of science is about trying to figure out why things happen. And I still think a lot of it is that they don't know why. And so they make up a reason until they can find a better reason. But is your provision dried up? Has your bank account run out? Are your cupboards bare? We were talking yesterday about, you know, towards the end of the, the shopping cycle when your cupboards start to get bare and you start to make leftovers and put them all together. Um, it's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just losing my train of thought. <sighs> that you get to a point where you just start making anything together. <laughs> you know, you'll have this for dinner. You know, we do that where I'll have something for dinner, Ash will have something else, and the kids will have something totally else, and it's just a mishmash of leftovers. But have you sold things or made compromises you never thought you'd have to make, maybe just to survive? That a lot of times we do things in life just to survive, that, man, if under any other type of pressure in life, we may have never... Um, May have never done it. 
But God, this morning we just pray that, Lord, you'd uh, speak to us in your word, that, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit and let it be your very oracles that go out, whether uh, my words or my words, let them be yours. And God, uh, we just want to spend time with you. We thank you for your word and uh, all that you are and all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read these two chapters together. Uh, it's going to be a lot, but uh, I think some of it is kind of, the second part you'll see is a genealogy, so we're going to cut through a lot pretty quickly. All right, so let's read the first seven verses of Genesis 46. And it says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had. Remember, Israel is Jacob's name uh, that God gave him. And came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts, which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the lands of Canaan, and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And we'll stop there. See that Jacob, once again, is uh, getting ready to move, except this time he's going down to Egypt. He's packed everything, they've got the carts full, and they're ready to head out. We see that when they get to Beersheba, uh, that Jacob offers sacrifices there. Uh, the God of his father, it says, the God of his father, Isaac. You know, I have to wonder, maybe Jacob slash Israel had been feeling distant from God all these years. Maybe he felt abandoned with all that happened with Rachel, with Joseph, with the famine, even perhaps thinking back to Esau. And now his boys. His boys had lied to him all these years. And, you know, they had this trouble with Benjamin. And there's this famine. But we see here that he's returning again to worship God. That when he gets to Beersheba, uh, he begins to worship the God of his fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and God loves to be called the God of Jacob. We see that Beersheba uh, was the well of the sevenfold oath on the southern edge of Israel. If we uh, look back, we see that Hagar and Ishmael had fled through this area, the wilderness of Beersheba. That Abraham and Abimelech had made a peace treaty here when they had been fighting over wells. So this was a special place to them. This was a special spiritual family place that meant something to him. And he was leaving it behind. You know, whenever you kind of move out somewhere, you kind of leave things behind. Oh, this is the last time I'll drive down my street. This is the last time I'll drive down. Even if you're just moving to the next neighborhood, you know, you, you kind of leave uh, something familiar behind. But we know that Abraham had planted a grove here. And then Isaac uh, himself had made a peace deal with Abimelech here. You know that he gets here and this is the place where, man, this is where my dad was. This is where my grandfather was. They made peace treaties here. A lot has happened here in this promised land. And now I'm going to Egypt. What does this mean, Lord? And we look at these wells that this place was here because they fought over a source of provision. And isn't that the cause of many wars and political problems even? And sadly, even in the church, just fighting over the same source, over the same 
thing. Why the, why do a lot of fights happen in marriages? It's over the provision. Well, how much money are you spending? How much money are you spending? Well, I need to buy this. Well, I need to buy this. And it's over the same stuff. But you know what? We don't need this fight over the source of life in Jesus. There's always enough. There's always more than enough. And he's always willing to fill our cups to overflowing. That when you and I come to the Lord, it's never enough. He's never going to run out. He's never going to say, well, I already gave some to your friend and your spouse, but I don't have anything left to you. But when we come to the Lord, there's always enough there, especially in those times of trouble, especially in those times of remembrance, in those special places to us when our heart begins to break. Man, God seizes on those moments and loves to fill us in those times. And I love that God calls Jacob Israel here because his new name, Israel, governed by God as opposed to being deceiver and heel catcher, is very apparent when he's going in the right way, in the way the Lord wants him to go. When he's spending time with the Lord, it's apparent that he's governed by God. It does, not that it erases all of the place of his deception in life, but that it takes it away, that it replaces it, that the man he used to be, even if he flounders from time to time, he can be that governed by God person if he would just let himself be governed by God. And when he does spend time with God and he hears God's voice, he says, here am I, here am I. And this is what we should say. This is what every servant of God will say naturally. Like Samuel, here am I, Lord. Your servant is listening. Speak. Amen. God, here am I. Don't miss me. I almost harkens back to the beginning of our study in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden. And after they sinned, they hid from God. I think God used to call throughout the garden, Adam, Eve, and they would say, here am I, Lord. But that time they were hidden. And I love that God says to Jacob, fear not. Fear not. You have to, you know, anytime we see that in the Bible, why would God say that? Because he's afraid. Wouldn't you or I be? There's this big economic and physical trial in the land, this famine, unlike they've never seen before. He's about to move away to a foreign land, not knowing what it's going to be like. And what about God's promises to inherit the promised land? God had promised this land to his grandfather and father and him himself. And now as he's getting older, he's leaving it. What does that mean for all of that? What does that mean for the things of God? Had he done something wrong? Was this God's promise not to them anymore? And it seemed like the very opposite of, of where, he would be, where he would be at the end of his life. But God reminds him that he would make of him a great nation. And that more than that, God would go down with him to Egypt. That Egypt was a godless place. A wicked land. A land that was full of idols and idolatry. But God would go with them and be there with them. And I think of the times when God would walk and meet with Abraham. I have to wonder, was Jesus walking around the streets of Egypt in a Christophany sort of way. And I have to wonder if Jacob's eyesight was going well, like his, going as well like his father's. Remember that uh, Isaac was uh, blind or at least had poor vision, maybe cataracts or glaucoma or something. And so he couldn't see his son, but he could feel him and he could smell him and hear him. And God says to him, just so put his hand on your eyes that you'll, you'll see him again that in a way that Man, Joseph will come close. You'll feel him. You'll know it's him. You'll know it's him. You won't be tricked by your eyesight like you tricked your dad. And how important it is to worship God and hear for him before we do anything 
major in life. It helps too, even when you're just going to Walmart to throw up a quick little prayer, Lord, help me buy the right things, because otherwise you might walk out with 50 things of fried chicken and Oreos and you forgot to get all the essentials. But sincerely, before we actually set out, before we actually go, we do need to worship God. We do need to pray and seek Him and make sure it's the right thing. Even if we feel like we've heard from Him, double check. Because He'll quell our fears and encourage us and confirm to us that it's Him or He'll show us that it's not the right way to go. He'll say, what are you doing here? Or he'll say, yes, I'll be with you and I'll go down with you to Egypt. I like that it says the sons of Israel. And I'm so glad to have my boys, my daughters too. But that these sons are now caring for their dad like they should have all along. He's old and they're taking care of him. They're putting him in the carts. They're making sure that he gets down there. They've done these trips back and forth over and over. But it must have been something great to move to this foreign land. You know, they're moving to this powerful, the most powerful nation at this time. And they're in wagons provided by the king of this land, Pharaoh himself. Must be something. Imagine moving to America and you're in a plane and a boat and a bus provided by the country itself. But God provided for their move into Egypt using the wealth of Egypt. And God will also provide for their exodus out of Egypt using the wealth of Egypt. If you remember that when they fled after that last plague, that the Egyptians gave them all sorts of wealth as they went out of the city. And it's been said that where God guides, God provides. And that's true. That's absolutely true. I've seen that in my life. But sometimes it'll take years of famine and of trouble and of doubt for us to finally arrive at that bus stop, so to speak, when Pharaoh's carts roll in, we hop on and we're brought into a land of plenty and provision. Because God had to set up a lot for them to get to Egypt. Without Joseph, nobody would have been going to Egypt. Nobody would be getting in. No carts would have been sent back. And certainly they wouldn't have been allowed to live in the land of Goshen. And likely, they may have even died where they were if God hadn't sent Joseph ahead. So be careful. When God guides, God provides. That's true. But be careful we're not asking God to provide in a way that we expect him to provide. If he doesn't show up in the time set that you expect, if he doesn't show up with the job that you expect or the money you expect, or the, maybe God's going to provide in another way. Maybe there's something else we have to get rid of, or perhaps we just need to get up and go where we need to be for him to provide for us. In this verse that the Lord reminded me of last night, Psalm 68.6 says, God sets the solitary in families, and he brings those out who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. If Jacob hadn't listened, they would have dwelled in a dry land. But I think it's interesting that he says, God sets the solitary in families. Well, what does that mean? That God sets the solitary in families. And I like this, the way the, the, uh, this verse uh, translation says it, the NET. It says, God settles those who have been deserted in their own homes. And man, how many of you or I have ever felt deserted in our own home? Abandoned, left behind, alone even. Maybe no one listens to you. Maybe no one cares. Or maybe you're all alone. Know that God allows that to happen for his purpose and that he'll settle you. 
If you don't feel settled, even in your own home, He will settle you. He will give you a home in Him. You know, I was reminded last night, I was in my office and spending time with the Lord. And I was just brought back to a time when I first got saved and in the room in my mom's house in upstate New York and sitting on the floor and looking out the window at the stars. And I was sitting at the floor looking out the window last night. And same, similar size space my office is to that room that I had and coming to know the Lord and how I felt so abandoned and trapped in that place before I knew the Lord and how I was also brought into a bigger room when I lived with some friends and I remember sitting on the floor maybe only been saved a year or so or less and looking out the window and I would do that regularly and how God had brought me from one room to another to another to another to another in my life and yet I could sit there and spend time with him. And the connection was the same. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes we have to be that solitary one that's set in that solitary place for that to happen. We see that Joseph was deserted in his own home. But God kept settling him in greater and greater ways. And these things do happen to us for a reason. There's, with Joseph, he had this pattern of uh, patterns of dreams. He had a dream, a coat. He was in a pit. He was sold. Then he was put in charge again, like a coat again. Then he was falsely accused, put in prison, and then put in charge of the prison. Got a coat again. More dreams. And then he was forgotten again. And then he was exalted again. And this time in the final place in charge for his family. But God had to set him in this solitary place among his family. His brothers hated him. He was put in a pit. He was sold away into Egypt. That's pretty solitary in his family, right? But God did that to settle him, that he might bring his family out to settle his family. And like I said, this pattern of things, there's all other things, you know, that I'm starting to remember and explore and look at these patterns of things that God has done in my life. And and I'm not trying to put God in a box of patterns, but we have to look at our lives and look at the things that God has allowed to happen and have to wonder if it's not related to his call on our life, the way he specifically made it. Because, you know, some people can live a life of sin and everybody loves them. But I found the more I lived in sin, the more everyone I loved was pushed away. And that'll happen. But I have to wonder if that's not because of the call of God in my life. That it wasn't God saying, no, no, no. You, if you're not going to follow me, you're going to be set in solitary places in your life. And it's going to be bad if you sin. And it's going to be good if you allow it to do uh, in God's way. Because I've been set in solitary places for my own sin. And I've also been set in solitary places because that's a sign of God's call in my life. That he separated me and called me out for reasons. I've lost friends in life and lost things even when following God. And it's hurt. And I can look at it one way. Why, God, would you take away my friends? But I think the right way to look at it is God was allowing them to go away that I might be drawn closer to him. That God might become more of my friend and I might become a better friend to those around me. Because remember, God settles those who have been deserted in their own homes. And you and I were destined for much more. And maybe God has let you 
be solitary because he has planned for you to be holy. And that's what holy means, is to be separated unto him. And like I said, we look at things backwards sometimes. It's not God casting us off when others do, but instead it's God drawing us near when others cast us off. And he's always setting us up for something that's greater spiritually. It may be less physically, but it's greater spiritually. Look at Joseph's life. He had everything going, and then all of a sudden he's in a pit and a slave. That's a lot less physically, but spiritually it was a lot greater. And this other verse, which is great, Proverbs 10, 22 the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. There was a lot of sorrow in Joseph's life. Joseph, if he had Proverbs 10.22, I don't know that he would have been clinging to it. But man, look at the end of his life. Look at how much sorrow was wiped away and taken away at the end when his family is restored. And let's go on and read uh, 8 through 28 here. It says, Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shal, and the son of a Canaanite woman. I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these. But the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Er, Onan, Shelaz, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Eshua, Eshua, Beri, and Sarah, their sister. The sons of Bariah were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, a priest of On, bore him. And I love that even though Joseph is in Egypt, his children are still counted as Jacob's children. The sons of Benjamin were, uh, he was still part of the family. The sons of Benjamin were Bala, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Mupim. You know, the, the Muppets there. Uh, Hupam and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan was Hashim, Hushim. The sons of Natali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. So Dan only had one uh, out of all these guys. Uh, these were the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel's daughter. And she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from uh, his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. It says, Then Judah he sent before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So these sons of Jacob's sons, these were the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel here. Um, and we won't get into the deal with Manasseh and Ephraim and the other tribes that get cut off. Uh, but we see that Judah lost two sons. And perhaps God used that to change his heart. Maybe that's what it took to change his heart for Benjamin. And uh, we see here uh, later on, maybe he realizes when he had sons and he lost them, what he really did to his father. But we do see that Benjamin had sons. And so obviously he was still treated like the precious little baby of the family. And you know, my mom always says to me, oh, you'll always be my baby no matter how old you are. 
And I get it. I see my kids and I get that. But clearly Benjamin was a grown man with a large family. We see 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus 7 equals 70 plus Jacob's wives. So this is quite the family. And this is quite the journey to get to this point. Think about how far God had brought Abraham until now. And they're going into Egypt. That this nation with Abraham and Sarah who couldn't even have a son is now 70 plus people in one at one time. We see that Judah went ahead. Again, we see that Judah seems to be taking a leadership role that perhaps Reuben sort of stepped out of in life. Again, Reuben always promising, oh, I, my, I'll, we'll die. We'll die for you. We'll let him die. Or my kids will die. And, and Judah seems to have a little more of a level set head on him. And whether we're firstborn or thirdborn or 15th born in our family, it's our duty to take the spiritual lead especially if the spiritual leader is not. If, if the dad isn't being a spiritual leader, the mom is going to step up. And we see that a lot of times that the dads, man, just don't take that lead. It's their responsibility to like, oh, let the mom do it. And it's because I think they haven't really tasted the Lord. They haven't really come to know the Lord. Because when you come to know him, that responsibility becomes imbued in you. And it's like being a, a single parent. You know, You're, we're not designed to do it alone. Mom can certainly do it, but man, it's hard. It's hard for a man to do it too. But man, the, the man should be doing it. The dad should be doing it. The firstborn should be doing it. And we see that Judah praise is the one who's going out before them. And we should always let praise go before us in anything. We should always pray like uh, Jacob did before they left. We should always worship. We should always like go into that battle, so to speak, like the Israelites would do with the trumpets blaring, with the praise being to God, because the enemy scatters when we worship God. The enemy doesn't like to hang around here God worshiped. The enemy, in fact, let down his spiritual duty to worship God, to exalt himself, and he hates worship. So for more than that, it's so good to worship God. He gets all the glory that way, and, and we realize that, man, it's, it's not in our hands when we worship. When we lift our hands to God, we see none of it is in our hands. Uh, a pastor friend of mine shared what he and his wife say. They go, they look at each other's hands. They go, is it in our hands? No, okay, it's in God's hands. So they can relax and, and let it go. And we see that uh, Judah goes ahead of them to let Joseph know that they're coming to the land of Goshen. It kind of reminds me of going on vacation and we pull up to the hotel after a long day of driving and I get out to go check in while Ashley gets the kids ready. And it's just much easier if I've already checked in and we can just go right to the room instead of trying to corral them in the, in the, in the middle area to figure out where we're going. It's just a lot more organized that way. And so Judah goes on ahead here. If you remember, Goshen means drawing near. Drawing near. It's a region in northern Egypt, east of the lower Nile. And the children of Israel lived there all the way, like we talked about last time, until the time of Moses. That this Goshen was going to be their incubator was going to be the place where they grew and became a great nation um, that they wouldn't have survived outside of it. They could have gotten molded into the people that were around them, and, but God had this set aside for them. But again, it took all this trial, all this trouble to get them there. Um, and it, would, it wouldn't have happened any other way. And sometimes in life we go, why is it like this, Lord? Well, let me tell you, the promises of God wouldn't have come about in your life any other way. Would we have even gotten saved 
if God had allowed our lives to fall apart? Probably not. We would have continued on in our stubborn rebellion and dwelt in a dry and barren land. So we see verse 29. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. We see that Joseph makes ready his chariot. He goes out, he makes sure that the Bentley's gassed up, that it's all shinied up, and he hops in it. And he wasn't waiting for his dad to come to him. He was going out to meet his dad, and he presented himself to him. And what a reunion this had to have been. You know, it says that they hugged and they wept a while, that he fell on his neck. And can we use that instead? Oh, I fell on your neck. You know, the, the real hug where you're just hanging on them. Your neck is in their neck, and you're just, he's just weeping. It's not just that hug with the, double pat on the back it's you know or that side hug this is dad son all these years i thought you were dead they didn't know if you were alive they both didn't know dad thought his son was dead and joseph was worried is my dad still alive it's been so long but imagine seeing your little boy after all these years the one you thought was dead and now he's a grown man he's in charge of the day-to-day -day operations of an entire nation the most powerful nation on earth he's more than the vice president he's wearing the finest suit he's showing up in the nicest car and knowing that you're there to live with him for the rest of your days that your family is now safe from the famine that god is with you and everything behind you is behind you that there's forgiveness and restoration and favor and all the riches of egypt are at your disposal and that certainly sounds a lot like heaven doesn't it doesn't god come out to meet us at the white horse and we ride with him we get to heaven. We don't have to worry about this life. But we see that even in all this, maybe I'm reading into it, but Israel, Jacob, still seems a little bit like a cogity old man. He goes, now let me die. I don't know if he said it like that, but, you know, he was living just to see Joseph. He was hanging on that he might see Joseph again. At least he thought he was hanging on, as we'll see. But that's all he wanted in life was to see Joseph again. And, uh, you know, Losing a child, that's got to be the only... If there was a chance to see them again, I'm sure that would cause anyone to hang on. But now he had, and so now he could die in his mind. Okay, I've had enough. I've seen Joseph. Let me die. But a lot like before, and a lot like his dad Isaac, uh, and with Jacob and Esau, he wasn't going to die yet. Remember that Isaac was thought he was going to die, and he blessed his son, but he didn't die for many years after that. And so I guess this kind of runs in the family. They get old, and they just want to call it quits. I think that speaks that we really don't know how long we have in life, that we really can't take it for granted. You know, we don't know what tomorrow will bring if we'll even make it. We could die this afternoon. But also, on the flip side of that, don't sell yourself short. Don't say, oh, my life is over. Oh, my eighth grade boyfriend dumped me. My life is over. No, it's far from over. Or even, oh, I'm 62. I'm going to retire. Life is over. It's not over. You could have 40 years left to serve the Lord. 
Don't sell yourself short. You may have more than enough time left to see God do amazing things in and through and for you. Even if it's just one more day and he does something great, stick around for it. But we see that Joseph coaches them a little bit and what to say to Pharaoh. You know, these politicians that go up on the debates, don't think that they're giving you some answer off the top of their head. They've done research. They've done testing. They've tested different phrases and things to see which one resounds more with the people to try and get more votes. They are so coached on what to say. It is a team of people trying to figure out what's going to get them into office as opposed to uh, what they may actually believe. But Joseph's trying to do that here. He says, guys, the Egyptians, they don't really like shepherds. Kind of dirty and stinky and really an abomination. They won't even eat with you guys. So tell them you care for livestock. The Egyptians like livestock better than they like shepherds. So if you're a cowboy, that's fine with them. Tell them that you're a cowboy. You know, the Egyptians, probably a lot like how some of the upper echelons of our society looked at them like they'd probably be blue-collar workers or farmers who are just country bumpkins. Oh, you grew up in the middle of the country? What do you know? You know, and not quite the case, I think. Uh, I've worked in the world for almost 20 years professionally. I've traveled. I've been in meetings with CEOs and presidents and bankers and all sorts of people, um, which I think is funny enough alone that I've ever been in the room or <laughs> flown around the country for these things. But I've seen a lot of capable people in these high places. I've seen a lot of smart people, a lot of respectable people, a lot of people who've worked hard. But I've also seen quite a few that, I don't know how they got there. And I wonder, how does this company even keep going with people like this who are running it? With the bureaucracy and things. And I've even seen that people might even think that farmers weren't smart. They might think any farmer or tradesman is just a hillbilly and that all oh, they're they don't know anything because they don't live in the city but far from that i've seen way more farmers and tradesmen who have actual talent actual intelligence actual common sense and they don't have a college degree they may never even been to a big city but i look at them and i go this guy knows how to do life this guy knows how to handle things this other guy can't even change his flat tire and he thinks he knows more thinks he's more capable because he can schmooze that's not the case. I'm not saying if you live in the city or you're a CEO that you don't know anything about life, obviously you know a lot. I'm glad that there's people, even the company I work for, that know about the things that I don't know about. And I'm fine. you do that. You do it real well. That's why the company's doing well. So I'm glad to be on board with that. So don't take that wrong, the wrong way. But let's go on. So Joseph's concerned that his family is going to show their country bumpkin roots and they're not going to be able to stay. Uh, so let's see what happens. At 47, it says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are now in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land. Because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. 
Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And so Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, turn the page here, and his household with bread according to the number in their families. So we see that Joseph picks out the five guys from among his brothers and maybe their sons uh, to present to Pharaoh. He's like, okay, well, you're good looking. You're strong. You look healthy. You've got great hair. And you're a smart guy who talks well. Come with me. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't pick the runt of the litter, so to speak. And that's wise. You know, you don't want to bring all 70 people before Pharaoh. You're going to pick the right delegation, just like at work. You know, when we go before a client presentation, you pick the people that are most pertinent to the job that can speak to it the best. But Joseph's choosing his cards wisely. He's putting his best foot forward here. You know, he's second in charge of the land, but still, they're going before Pharaoh. This is a big deal, even for Joseph. And so Pharaoh asks, and what do they say? We're shepherds. And I looked, I was trying to see, maybe the translation's funny, but it's the same word, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. So I... I don't know. Maybe they said the right thing. Maybe they didn't. Uh, but what do you think Joseph's look on his face was at that moment? If they said shepherds, he's like, guys, I just told you to say livestock. Don't say shepherd. You know, you're not lying to him. <laughs> just don't tell him, you know, you grew up in the foothills of so-and-so. But Pharaoh doesn't seem to flinch here. And he turns to Joseph. And I think somehow because of his respect for Joseph perhaps for a personal liking for the man and how he interpreted his dreams and he cared for Egypt and obviously everything came true. Obviously Egypt's been running like clockwork these past uh, eight or nine or 10 years. Um, and he, he makes sure Joseph's family is well taken care of and that's God's favor that this king of Egypt would bless Joseph and when Joseph's 70 people show up, the king's like, yes, give them the best of the land. Give them Ramsey's land. Give them the land of the pharaohs. Give them a good chunk of that. You know, it's kind of like, I think James warns us. He says, when someone comes into your fellowship with nice apparel and you set him in the, in the best seat and someone comes in who's homeless and stinky and you set him in the back, are you not hypocrites? That Pharaoh, man, these people come in stinky and he says, put them in the best seat. Isn't that what the father did for us? We came in all stinky and sinful. I said, come sit in the front row. Come be a part of everything we're doing here at church because I love you. I don't think that Pharaoh loved Jacob or anything, but sincerely, that's his, Pharaoh seemed to be a stand-up guy. He favored Joseph, and he was obviously doing the right thing, even if he didn't know God. And so Joseph brings Jacob, his dad, in. You know, now that they've kind of passed the first test, let me introduce you to my dad. And uh, Dad's a little salty, and Pharaoh says to him, How old are you? And Jacob might look pretty old now. And it can be kind of hard to tell someone how old someone is who's worked a hard life. They've worked out in the field. You're like, how old are you? Like 35. You know, they're sun-worn and beaten. Uh, but Jacob, uh, again, he says, I'm 130. He's old. He's old by any standard. But he's not dead yet. And 
He says, quite interestingly, he says, the days of my life have been short. That although I'm 130, I haven't lived much. I've had a hard life, an evil life. I've done a lot of evil. And the things that have happened to me have been evil. And I think Jacob, in some way, if I'm reading it correctly, feels like he hasn't lived up to the lives of Abraham and Isaac. He hasn't had the great spiritual exploits that he wishes he had. He realizes in the presence of Pharaoh, this person who is in power, he goes, man, my life, Pharaoh, it's been short and evil. I haven't done the right things with it, perhaps. And he says the days of their pilgrimage. And I think in one way he could probably be talking of the journey from Ur as a family all the way down through the land. But I think also he knows that his life is just a pilgrimage. That he's born one day, even though it's been 130 years, it's only a short time, and that's it. And First Chronicles 29.15 says, For we are strangers before thee, God, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth there is a shadow, and there is none abiding. And second, First Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, that our life is a pilgrimage. Don't hang on too tightly. You may have to move to another place. You may have to change your ways. And even then, even if you lived to 130, how long is that in the scheme of things? How long of history is that? It's not much at all. I think Jacob was thinking of the trouble with Esau when he was a kid, lying to his dad when he was on the run in Laban's house, and trouble there, being tricked there, coming back after all those years and being fooled and being taken advantage of. And he's dealing with Esau. He deals with the people of the land. Dinah, his daughter, being raped, Rachel dying, Joseph's death, quote-unquote, you know, that he thought, and his son's lying to him for all those years and all his famine. That doesn't sound like a fun life. If I was born and I got to choose, I don't think I would choose Jacob's life. I might want to choose Pharaoh's life. But Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and I wonder how that went. I don't think it was, God bless you, Pharaoh, I'll see you later. I wonder what he said to him. It was probably, probably interesting. And I think Pharaoh, in a sense, was blessed by it, too. I think Pharaoh was the type of guy who would listen to a man like this who is so low on the earthly pedestal compared to him and would hear these things. And somehow I think it blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes, wow, I'm not 130. What are the days of my life? Even though I'm Pharaoh, I'm in this position. What have I really done with it? So we see that Joseph dishes out uh, more food for the land for them according to their number. I believe it's some type of a ration that they were receiving. The Egyptians were living on rations as well as this time, as we'll see. And again, remember the land was hurting very severely, but there were still a few years left of this famine. And now for all this family, 70 plus people, Joseph was their sole provider. Even though they dwell in this land, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They had nothing left but him. Let's go on to verse 13. It says, now there was, uh, we're going to read through 26. Now there was bread in all the land and the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Uh, that's the house is full. I don't know if you watch Scrooge McDuck as a kid. He would jump into a pile of gold. That's probably Pharaoh's house at this point. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt, verse 15, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. 
Then Joseph said, give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, and the cattle, and the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year had ended, they came to him uh, the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all the land, uh, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one of the uh, end of the borders to Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of, our, of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. And to this day, if Moses is writing this, it's 400 years later. So that became the law. But we see that all the wealth ended up coming into Pharaoh's hand. The people had spent all their money. They had emptied every pillowcase. They had flipped over every mattress. And they had spent everything to get the bread and the famine still wasn't over. I have a feeling there's only about a year or two left here at this point, but their money has become worthless. There's hyperinflation, economic collapse. If you look at stuff, what happened in Germany after World War II, they were going down, when the Nazi regime fell, they were going down the streets with wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks, and it was basically worthless. Basically worthless. Millions of dollars, so to speak, buy a piece of bread. If you look uh, in some African countries after war and turmoil, same thing. The paper we have, if you still carry cash, or the digits in your electronics account, what is it really? What happens when the bank shuts down? What happens if the government freezes your account? What happens if all of a sudden overnight there's war and America gets shut out for some reason? It will be worthless. It has no intrinsic value. Some will say that gold and silver might fare better. And yeah, it might because gold and silver kind of has this value that's not really tied to the government. And it's really scary that our government took our money off something that has an actual weight, an actual value in the 60s, gold, and got rid of the gold standard. And we've seen inflation go way up because now we base our money on things that are political based on our power and who controls the oil and what the influence is of our nation on the world? What happens when that goes away? What happens when China and, and Russia inevitably rise up and are more powerful than us? Our money is not going to be worth squat, guys. They're trying to, our money is tied to the, the petrodollar. And when that goes away, you and I might be going down the street, except I don't have buckets of cash. So what are we going to have? We may find ourselves in a place like these Egyptians here. Because you can't eat gold and silver. 
Although you might see some rich people do now. They put gold flake in it. It's like, holy cow, you're, right. you're eating gold? Just give it to me. But we see that they now trade their livestock for food, and that only lasts another year. You know, they come one year, here's our livestock. They get their food for that year. They come back the next year, we've got nothing left. Here's our land. Take our land, take our bodies that we might live. And I think it's funny that they basically say, we're not going to hide the fact that we're broke. <laughs> you know, we're not going to pretend we have money around here. Sometimes you kind of do that in life. But this is one way I, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent here as we get to the end. I worry about being overly dependent on any government because soon as the government's money will be worthless and we'll have given over all of our possessions and freedoms and rights and we'll effectively be slaves keeping the government afloat. And you know what that's called? Communism. When the government owns everything, you're a slave to the government. And does that last? Has that ever been good for people? No, it has not. It always crushes the people. And in fact, the government usually turn, tends to turn on the people. And we'll see how it works out for the Jews in a couple hundred years. But in Egypt, there was a severe famine unlike the world has seen. And yet, I still don't know that selling yourself to the government just to live is the answer. It says that they sold their fields, that their fields are pretty much worthless now, but they're selling them that they might get seed to plant in them. So I wonder, when they got the bread, why did they not buy seed as well? Was the cost of seed so high? Was the cost of farming out of reach of all these people that they couldn't do it? But obviously there's, there's something amiss here because if Pharaoh wants 20% of what they're gonna make, so obviously stuff is growing a little bit now, Maybe the famine is about to be over. But what Pharaoh does here is he takes all these people and he moves them into the cities. He puts them in apartments and homes and subdivisions. And then by day, they'll go out and work the fields and they'll come home. And this is where they, they live. And it kind of reminds me, and I know it's not exactly the same, but isn't that what Nazi Germany did to the Jews when they began to take over? They didn't put them in death camps right away, but they began to take their stuff. They began to put them in the ghettos. And I, and I think it's scary when the government has that much control over the people. That Pharaoh now owns everything. This guy, we see, he's not a bad leader. Joseph's obviously in charge too, so it's not bad now. But what's the potential here? And we see that the priests were under rations from Pharaoh. That Joseph's wife was even a daughter of an Egyptian priest. Um, so we see that there was this care for uh, the religious folks uh, of Egypt. It's interesting how uh, in some way the Levites were that same way. But it says he bought them and their land. And so now they take the seed and they work for Pharaoh. And it's interesting that they have to go back and work their own lands now. It's kind of like the, was it, the feudal system in the Middle Ages where they would work the land for the king. The king owned the land, but they would work it and be able to eat from it. So obviously, again, something was growing in these lands. You know, the government's not going to ask for a tax if there's no money to be taxed there. They're always going to tax where the money is. But we see that 20% goes to Pharaoh. And 80% goes to yourself. That's really not a bad deal, given that Pharaoh now owns you and the land. He's only taxing you 20%. Because how much tax do you and I pay today? Well, I think it's roughly 30% or more, plus state and local taxes, sometimes even up to 40-something percent, I think. But the Egyptians were straight-up slaves now, and they were only taxed 20%. Egyptians were slaves and taxed 20%. You and I think we're free and we're taxed 40-something percent. There's something off here. 
And especially there's something off when God only asks for 10% and we balk at that 10%. But when a politician promises us free health care, student debt forgiveness, retirement funds, we sign up right away with our vote. But it's never free. It always costs more. And it's never managed well. I'm sorry, guys. Joseph is not in charge of the, the health care system right now. If you look at the top contributor to Congress over the past 20 years, it's been the health care system. And so you have to wonder, why do we have this health care law right now? It's because of the health care system. It always fails. And guess what? When it fails, they tax us more. Oh, well, we don't have enough money to do what we promised to do, so we have to raise taxes. Oh, well, now we don't have enough money to do what we promised to do, so we have to raise taxes. And now you, you, we've taxed you so much, you can't afford to, to take care of your own lands. You can't afford to raise your crops. You can't afford to raise your family, even though you're working two jobs. So you can't pay back your student debt. You can't get out of trouble. You can't pay for health care, so we'll pay for health care for you. And it's this vicious cycle. Over and over, they take more and more and more and more. And some of the politicians right now want over a 60% tax to pay for all this stuff. And you know what? They're not going to stop there because the end goal is 100%. And what's the end goal there? Communism. Because the government says that people can't take care of themselves. You don't know how to, you don't know how to drive, so you have to wear your seatbelt. And I'm kind of fine with that. But you don't know how to eat, so we're going to make soda illegal. And if that's the case, if the government thinks that we're so incapable of making even simple decisions, well, who elected that government to power? Probably the same foolish people that the government thinks are fools, right? But I'll get off the government horse as we close here. Verse 27 says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt and the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So we see that they lived in Goshen and they grew and multiplied exceedingly. I think that still that's pretty amazing, let alone being planted there in a famine. To do well in a place is one thing, but to do well in a place even during a famine is another. And we see that Jacob lived 17 more years to 147. You know, again, he thought he was ready to die at 130. He had 17 years left, almost two decades left. And he wasn't ready to die yet. We see even now we still have a couple more chapters with Jacob left to go. But he asked Joseph to pledge to him not to be buried in Egypt, that Jacob's heart was in the promised land. It wasn't in Egypt. That although God saved them and brought them there, this is, this is not where he wanted to spend out eternity. Uh, and again, I think it, he knew his bones were symbolic. But this is how we're to be. That our heart is to be in heaven and not in this world. We should desire to be buried in heaven and not in this world. And like I've said before, I don't really care where I'm buried. Do the cheapest method you can. Scatter me on the mountains if you want, because I think that would be kind of cool to say, oh, my dad's up there, my dad's body's up there. But you know what? I'm not in the mountains. I'm not in the jar. I'm not six feet under. I'm in heaven with the Lord. And you better, you better get saved and come be with me, because if you're my friend or my family or you're just listening to this, you better be there. Otherwise, I'm going to ask for a, a five-day breed to come back and get you. <laughs> but that ain't going to work. 
But Joseph agrees, and Joseph, even at his death, wants to be carried out as well. And we see the Israelites do leave 400 years later. They leave what? With Joseph's bones in tow. And again, Israel doesn't die yet. Um, we'll see more of that soon. But as we close, where are you now? As we asked a, a week or two ago, is it feast or is it famine? Do you feel alone or abandoned? And in that, know that God truly has a plan to provide for you through it and in it. And just because we don't see the big picture, perhaps we're missing out on what God has allowed, the solitary time in our lives, is because he's drawing you and I near to himself and he's setting you apart for greater things. And Lord, we thank you for that, that God, although we may be solitary in our families like Joseph, we know that you do that to save Joseph, to save his family, and to save the nation of Israel. And in, and in turn, really to save all of the world. Because if Israel didn't survive, the Messiah couldn't have come, the promised Messiah. So thank you for that, God. So whatever we're going through, whatever the listeners are going through, help us, God. Help us turn to you and trust you. And God, let us put praise before you. Let the praise go before the cart that we might uh, know the right way to go and, and be comforted in it and know that you indeed are with us. Thank you, God, for loving us and always providing for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until